Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 34. The Screwtape Letters, Letter 17. Food, Glorious Food. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we are eavesdropping on a correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. David, we're back. Hello, Matthew. (laughs) We're recording this. This is right after a plethora of um, Walter Hooper tributes that you have put together so diligently that were fantastic. It was a lot of work getting everyone together and timing things out and dealing with all the different time zones. But I'm I'm really pleased with the ones that we produced. And it was really also great to be part of a a larger movement between us, uh, EssentialCSLewis.com and The Lamppost Listener. I was very impressed. Uh, listeners, I essentially heard them real time. I actually had no idea who David was reaching out to. I think in the very beginning, you were trying to coordinate with me on an episode. And then I said, I'm happy to join. I don't, I never met him. I don't know a lot about him. And then after that, I never heard anything. And I think you coordinated like 15, 20 things. And I just saw them release live. I let you have a quiet Christmas. It was a lovely, quiet Christmas. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm a little bit disappointed here, David, that, uh, we don't have the what we're reading because Matt really stepped up the challenge to make sure he was prepared to answer this question. Okay, Matthew, please tell us what you've been reading. Oh, thanks for asking, David. I wasn't sure you were going to ask that today. <laughs> I read a lovely book, two books right now, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians, <laughs> which David's laughing on the inside because I had to read it for an interview. <laughs> and who gave it to you, Matthew? It was actually, <laughs> David, Sir David Bates did. And actually, it's an incredible book. I did want to share a little bit, like, 10 seconds here because when I interview him, I don't want to talk as much about the book. I want him to, but incredible, absolutely incredible. A coming from the evangelical Protestant background, but finding wisdom in the medieval church, really blending the material and the spiritual, blending those practices of the material in the medieval church. Talks about theosis, talks about sacramentalism, a sacramental worldview. Incredible book. I'm absolutely in love with it. I can't wait for the interview, which I will be doing in two days and will probably be released in like two-ish weeks from now. Well, when this is released, maybe not, but we're recording this. <laughs> and I'm excited for listeners because we have a very diverse base. We have Catholics and Protestants all along the spectrum of high and low within each of those denominations. It's going to be a very bridging book. And I'm looking at my master spreadsheet and I see that that should be released the day before Valentine's Day. Oh, well, happy Valentine's Day, everyone. <laughs> And I'm actually reading another book David recommended, finally. And I'm loving this too, Perfect Timing, When the Church Was Young, Voices of the Early Fathers. And I somewhat assumed it was going to provide the actual letters of Ignatius, a Justin Martyr, a Polycarpa Clement, but it more just goes to their life and then key parts of their letters. It just gives you, it's more of the development of the key pivotal players rather than unpacking their theology or unpacking the teachings within their letter. But it does usually give you two or three key points. Loving the book too. Yeah, I think it's a really good introduction book for people that want to get into the early church fathers. This book will, it's kind of like a survey. It will give you an idea of the world you're stepping into, the key players involved, the key issues under discussion, and the modes to which they were transmitting the faith. And inspire you because martyrdom was a huge part of the very earliest ones. And so reading about Clement, reading about Polycarp, this just desire for martyrdom, honestly, but something that they can't choose themselves. It was really beautiful. One of my favorite lines from Ignatius is, allow me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. Mm. Mm. (laughs) You told me about it like six months ago. Glad I'm finally getting to it. Have you finished your Timothy Keller book though? Nope. (laughs) I read what I desire in the moment. (laughs) Mm, So you have unrestrained passions. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Right before this, I had a nothing bunt cake and it was absolutely delicious. (laughs) Well, just before we get going, uh, one other thing that I wanted to direct people towards is the podcast, What God Is Not. We had Sister Natalia and Father Michael on this show as guest co-hosts. 
And in their episode that was released this week on the time of recording, they had a really great discussion about a letter from Screwtape, where he's focusing on the questions of possessiveness, and particularly possessiveness when it comes to time. And so I'm trying to get Sister Natalia to be a guest co-host on that episode, since I think it'll be really interesting having a monastic talking about all of this sort of stuff, because they take a vow of poverty and obedience. And and that is very much an antidote to the uh, spiritedness that Screwtape wants to develop within the patient. Father Michael, I think he's, is he on the Poco a Poco podcast too, or no? Uh, I don't think so. That's... He used to be on Catholic stuff, you should know. That's the one. That's one. I knew there was some really popular one that I saw his image associated with. There we go. <laughs> well, let's get on to the song of the week. And today's was a bit of a no-brainer. It's Food, Glorious Food from the musical Oliver. Do you know it, Matt? No. Okay. I don't even know the musical Oliver. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Next thing you need to watch. It's part of your uh, cultural education. Uh, See, I I grew up with that. And at my school, we even had a school play. Because I went to an all-boys school. And the cast of Oliver... Everyone's a dude, except I think there are two girls in there. So it was perfect for an all-boys school to put on this performance. I'm going to be honest. I'm a little bit more in favor of the listener sent in John Marr alternative options. He did come up with some good ones, although he also included Mm -hmm. Food, Glorious Food as his first one. He suggested The Finer Things by Steve Winwood and My Way by Frank Sinatra. And that last one in particular, I often have heard Dr. Peter Kraft say that this is the song you hear in hell. I did it my way. <laughs> Which is partly why I like these ones better. The food, glorious food, really hits the idea of gluttony that they're using this example, but it's an example of a bigger issue that I think these songs get closer to tapping into the bigger issue. I would agree with you on that. And I also know, bo- I also know both of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, what did you choose as the quote of the week? Yeah, sorry I overrode both of yours. <laughs> but I like this one. David's like, really, what is it, Matt? Interestingly enough, it was actually about the male, but I thought this really hit the lesson that we should really be taking away from this. The great thing is to bring him into the state in which the denial of any one indulgence puts him out. For then his charity, justice, and obedience are all at your mercy. That I just thought was really relatable, direct, we're going to learn about this excessiveness of um, delicacy and wanting things very particular, proper ways is the right term. And the danger, there's a danger in its own rights, objectively, the gluttony. But there's also a danger of when it doesn't go your way, it doesn't take much then to get you off your charity, off your justice, off your obedience. And that's when it, I think, becomes particularly dangerous. I like it. What's our drink of the week? Interestingly enough, it's one, I don't actually know if you have this, but this was part of one of the kits. I don't know if this is one I bought myself and not you guys. I actually have a full bottle. I love it. Okay. So this came from my advent calendar though. So it was like ironic that I already had this too, but this is number seven out of 24. So I have a lot more. It's Talisker 10 year. So if you go back, listeners will probably have heard us done this once before at some point, but it's a good one. So let's, let's, let's smell this a little bit right now. Very smoky. Oh, smoky and just very pungent. <laughs> very smooth and syrupy. Whoa. Full. Like there's a lot going on in your mouth. Definitely notes of pepperiness. Mm-hmm. That lingers in the back of it on the end. Mm. Yeah, definitely a very long A little finish. maltiness. Yes. Yes, that's, the, that's definitely the, the other major thing that comes out of this. And when it comes to beer, I much prefer malts to hops. So uh, this is this is definitely up my alley. I actually am enjoying this quite a bit. I don't think the first time I did this, I enjoyed it as much because my smokiness has developed <laughs> since we have done these. This might be one that I enjoy more. It's it's an intense. I would not say for listeners, if you want a little bit of a subjective, I wouldn't suggest this to start. No. It is strong. It is full. It is pungent. It is smoky. It is peppery. But if you really want like a campfire taste smokiness, then <laughs> by all means, jump into the deep end. Why don't you toast one of our gold level supporters? Camille Sosinski. First of all, we're very grateful for you being a gold level supporter for us. But in the similar in the vein of this week's episode, Camille, when Screwtape tries to tempt you with indulgences not being satisfied, may you remain steadfast in your charity, 
and compassion. Cheers. Cheers. Did you listen to the recording of Andrew and I in the last one? Not yet. When Taylor's oh. got an edited version, I'll have a listen. Okay, well, listeners, you'll hear this afterwards, so they'll have already known what happened, but there was no chapter summary in there, and Matt had to wing it in real time. <laughs> this is what happens when you guys book appointments and don't update my master spreadsheet. You don't get support. That is a very fair point, actually. <laughs> but I loved it because I winged it, and I think I did a pretty good job. I saw this five minutes before getting out. I'm like, here we go. Got to put this together. <laughs> I put a few bullet points and talked around them. <laughs> okay, we will see if it was under 100 words or whether you get points detu- deducted as a result. <laughs> Well, here's to a real chapter summary. Yes, this is chapter 17, which was first published in The Guardian on the 22nd of August, 1941. Screwtape criticizes his nephew for underappreciating the vice of gluttony. He explains the difference between gluttony of excess and gluttony of delicacy, pointing to the latter's manifestation in the patient's mother. She has embraced an all-I-want attitude which results in her being particularly pernickety and fussy about her meals. The inevitable daily disappointments produce in her ill temper and fractured relationships. Screwtape suggests that Wormwood nurture the patient's vanity, turning him into a food connoisseur and thereby setting him on his own path towards gluttony. Screwtape concludes the letter by saying that gluttony can be an excellent preparation for attacks on chastity. I'm going to be interested at the end of that, the your interpretation of the last paragraph on chastity and the role. <laughs> it's a little ambiguous. Yes, I have some questions for you on that as well. <laughs> what are you talking about, David? I've got tons of experience with chastity. <laughs> well, I don't have any issue fighting that. Of course. <laughs> well, Screwtape <laughs> opens this letter, as I said in the summary, by criticizing Wormer's lack of appreciation for the vice of gluttony. And Screwtape says that he actually thinks that Hell has been doing a marvellous job on this front. He writes, One of the great achievements for the last hundred years has been to deaden the human conscience on that subject, so that by now you'll hardly find a sermon preached or a conscience troubled about it in the whole length and breadth of Europe. But before we go on with this, we've got to define our terms. Matt, what is gluttony? Honestly, the first word that comes to my mind is just excess. Mm-hmm. And... Of course, the connotations right away are around food, but I think I'm wise enough. I'm not reading anything you would put in there. It can be gluttony around anything. I think I fall into gluttony around experiences, excessiveness of a desire for a trip to be perfect and do the right things or excessiveness of a fancy dinner or excessiveness of gluttony around your alcohol that you're drinking. And it doesn't mean excessiveness of the amount, but the quality or needing the finest wines or the finest scotches. So I don't know I what that accent was, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. Well, I went and looked up what St. Thomas Aquinas had to say about this in his magnum opus, the Summa, and I found some real gold. I've got a few things I'll be mentioning over the course of the episode, uh, but this is the definition that he uses. Gluttony denotes not any desire of eating, but an inordinate desire. So that's the, that's, that's the, the central idea behind gluttony, an inordinate desire. And gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins, which was the classification which came out of the Desert Fathers, uh, especially Evagrius Ponticus, and it was popularized by his student, the very readable John Cassian. And just as an aside, Bishop Barron has got a fantastic series of talks on this. It's called Seven Deadly Sins, Seven Lively Virtues, where he takes the seven deadly sins, looks at them, and then looks at a corresponding virtue. Uh, however, Matthew, it's quiz time. Can you name all of the seven deadly sins? I should be able to because I had the seven deadly sins scotch glasses my sister got me for Christmas years ago. I'm going to give you a little bit of help because I've got a mnemonic. I don't want help. Okay, you don't want help. Fine. Okay, go for it. No, I don't want help. I don't want help. So I know gluttony, mm-hmm. pride, envy, greed, lust. Um, I got five, okay. Avarice, slothfulness, if I haven't said that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one more I'm missing. I had six. It makes me angry that you've forgotten about this one. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, now I have to really think of this one. Bum, 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 bum. It's not going to come to me. Bum. I can already tell you. It made me angry that you forgot wrath. 
Oh, <laughs> wrath. I guess you really, anger has been so diluted today when you're just, you're angry that you don't <laughs> actually really think of that. Do you really put envy on the same level, level as anger? Because I just think of anger as frustration, but there's a deeper anger. Well, close. <laughs> well, for listeners that would like a mnemonic device, I use wasp leg. Wasp leg. If you think about it, sin has got a, like a sting in its tail. So if you go through W-A-S-P-L-E-G and think of a sin associated with it, you'll usually again end up with the seven deadly sins. The worst part about that, I just confessed anger and confession <laughs> on Sunday. No, no, that's beautiful. That just shows you how much you've put it behind you. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I needed that. You're welcome. Uh, another thing before we go, before we move forward, what is it, would you say, that Screwtape loves about gluttony so much. Why is he such a fan of this? Actually, I don't know if he talks about this in the chapter as much, which this, well, it could be the chastity part, to be honest, is where it is. But it's the fact that habits beget habits. And so I actually think with the Exodus 90, where you have all of these different things, the diet one is super important because when you are disciplined with your diet, it's amazing how much the other spiritual disciplines become a lot easier. And there's certain disciplines, and I think in my case, at least, it's not the same for everyone, excessiveness of eating and drinking is actually a pretty easy one for me to implement. There are other ones that are insanely hard. And if I start with those ones, some of the bigger ones, like a chastity, and as a single male, lifelong chastity is not always the easiest thing, is uh, is a lot easier when I'm when I'm holding true to some of these other ones. So I think it's the fact that get them on the food where people don't really think as much about it, and it's a slippery slope from there. Yeah, I would say that's probably a good analysis. If if you're gluttonous, you generally have a weakened will, and it will get progressively worse, and your self-control and your self-discipline will fail, even over the simple matter of a donut. Well, if a donut can look tempting, there are other sins that are even more tempting. So what you're saying is I shouldn't have had the nothing bun cake right before this. <laughs> Didn't want to say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. Red velvet. Was it worth it, Matt? Was it worth it? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Anyway, Screwtape says that hell has done such a great job regarding gluttony in recent years for one particular reason. He says they focused on the gluttony of delicacy rather than the gluttony of excess. And he explains these two different kinds of gluttony, particularly the, the gluttony of delicacy, by referring to the work of Glubos, and he is the demon who's assigned to the patient's mother. And Glubos has apparently been doing exceptional work, subtly fostering the gluttony of the patient's mother. He says, She would be astonished, one day I hope will be, to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the quantities involved are small. So he's saying that the patient's mother is a glutton, but not because she consumes a lot of food. The amounts involved are small, but the results are the same. And this is important for screw tape, because he says, what do quantities matter, provided we can use a human belly and palate to produce querulousness, which is a tendency to complain, impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern. So this gluttony of delicacy has led to uh, a tendency to complain, impatientness, lack of love, and self-concern. And he says, Glubos has this old woman well in hand. It's just another example, first of all, of the cleverness, hide it behind quantity. Think of gluttony as excessive amount rather than excessive desire towards something particular, and you can rationalize it really quickly. And it's amazing how quickly we rationalize stuff. And the thing we keep coming back to with Screwtape is he is results-oriented. And he says that as a result of this kind of delicacy, the patient's mother is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. And he explains how. And if you're listening to the Andy Circus audio version of this, it's wonderful. He says, She is always turning from what has been offered her to say with a demure little sigh and a smile, Oh, oh, please, please. All I want is a cup of tea, weak, but not too weak, and the teensiest, weensiest bit of really crisp toast. You see? Because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. 
at the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes that she's practicing temperance. Wow, what cleverness, first of all, hiding a vice behind a virtue. Or at least a seeming virtue. Uh Uh-huh. And I have to say, I'm looking forward to the little bit later part of this letter when it talks about um, other ways of struggles. Because I I will say, I struggle with a a gluttony of excess sometimes or of um, a a nice dinner or a nice alcohol and things of that nature. I don't really struggle with this kind of gluttony, at least where I'm ever, if I get a wrong thing at Starbucks or if I go to a restaurant and you go and you pay a good bit and it's a poorly cooked food, I never send it back. I'm like, I'm really grateful just to be at the opportunity to be able to come to a place like this and for someone to give up their time and to serve a meal and the experience is what's most important. So I really don't struggle with this, uh, but some of these later stuff we're going to come up with, oof, I struggle with those. Well, because I'm English, I am genetically incapable of ever sending back a dish. And <laughs> I'm also incapable of really complaining too much to a waiter or a waitress. I remember seeing there was a little comic strip and it showed two English people eating and they're muttering about how terrible the food is. And then as soon as the waitress comes past, oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Really enjoying it. Uh, You know, all I'm thinking of right now, listeners, is I wonder how often David talks to Marie and says, oh, Matt this, oh, Matt that, but he will never do it directly to me. No, I do the right (laughs) thing. I talk about you behind your back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. It's it's as they say in Caddyshack. Um, they don't say that about you as far as you know, Carl. <laughs> That's a good movie. Silly. But good. <laughs> uh, I dated a girl once who she she had no problem with complaining or sending food back. And I remember once we were having brunch at uh, at a restaurant and the waitress came over and gave us some free drinks. And she went, oh, why, I wonder why they gave us free drinks. And I, and I said, you know how you spoke to her last time she was here? She's scared of you. And it didn't register. She must be a D personality <laughs> dominant where you, you say something and you just have to vocalize it and it's never personal and then you just move on. Yeah, I, I when uh, after she had said it, I looked to the waitress and we, we, we sort of shared a moment where I said with my eyes, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's like when Ross in Friends, after Rachel's dad doesn't tip very well, and he goes back and puts the tip, and then Rachel's dad sees it, blows up at him. Oh, very much like that. I don't want to mess with that. No. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to the safety of Aquinas, because earlier I mentioned I checked the Summa on gluttony. And in question 148, uh, Aquinas quotes St. Gregory the Great, who is... Uh, he was a 6th century father, because Aquinas loves to quote the early church fathers when he's looking at theological questions. And St. Gregory speaks about this very particular kind of gluttony. He says the vice of gluttony tempts us in five ways. Sometimes it forestalls the hour of need. Sometimes it seeks costly meats. Sometimes it requires the food to be daintily cooked. So even back in the 6th century, St. Gregory the Great realized that gluttony isn't simply excess of eating. I relate to the forestalling the hour of need and costly meat. <laughs> yeah, when people get hangry, they're, they're, they're not very good at, uh, at delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Screwtape goes on to explain that the patient's mother also balks at the serving sizes in restaurants, and she will regularly send these dishes back to the kitchen under the pretense of avoiding waste. Again, she's trying to use a, a virtue as cover. But Screwtape explains what's really at work here, and it's It's quite insidious. He says, she does it because the particular shade of delicacy to which we have enslaved her is offended by the sight of more food than she happens to want. So I think that underscores the central part, the central problem of gluttony. It's about me getting what I want. And Screwtape says that Glubos' success can be seen in his results. Screwtape says, her belly now dominates her whole life. And I couldn't read that without thinking of Philippians 3.19, where St. Paul says, their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. I couldn't help but thinking about just that concept that I think is so important. Virtue in a virtuous life is freedom. Vice in a life filled with vice is enslavement. And this is the perfect example of that. The belly dominates her whole life. 
someone who has self-control, self-discipline is free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a quotation a little bit later from, from the catechism, making that very point. Mm. Wisdom. Be attentive. Glubos uh, has now put the woman in what Screwtape calls an all-I-want state of mind. All she wants is a cup of tea properly made, or an egg properly boiled, or a slice of bread properly toasted. But she never finds any servant or any friend who can do these simple things properly. Because her properly conceals an insatiable demand for the exact and almost impossible pal- uh, palatal pleasures which she imagines she remembers from the past. And Screwtape says that these memories aren't actually even real. She's just remembering a time in her life when she was A, more easily pleased, and B, had other kinds of non-food-related pleasures in her life. This is the comment I was going to make, and it could have applied earlier, of how really, when you mentioned, this all comes down to her getting what she wants. The, the concealed comment that the reason she is this way is because she's not experiencing a lot of pleasures in life. And there was a time when these things wouldn't have been that big of a deal because there's non-related joy, pleasure in her life. And so if you really get to the core of what's happening here, and I always like to try to boil it down to what's happening at the core, it's a desire to control. And it's really a desire to control happiness, desire to control joy. And she's not doing it in the right ways. And she's trying to find it in a particular meal, particular food, particular experience or proper is probably the better word. And in reality, that's not the source of joy and happiness. And so it goes back to what we've mentioned before in previous letters. Aquinas is big on this. Find some true pleasure. I think Father Brian and I talked about this too. When you bring that into your life, these things go away. So if you're someone who struggles with this, and you're asking yourself, man, do I just need to be self-aware? And then when I watch the emotion arising, squash it. Yeah, maybe that can help. But that's just trying to beat down the symptom. Go to the root cause, which is just finding genuine joy and pleasure in the real ways. And honestly, this stuff doesn't happen. And I think also being grateful for things. Okay, perhaps yeah. your cup of tea wasn't made exactly as you would like, but it's still a cup of tea and delicious. Perhaps the toast wasn't quite as crunchy as you wanted. Maybe it wasn't quite as tinsy-wincy as you wanted. But to be grateful for having them regardless. That You know, I'm glad you said that because that is honestly does naturally go through my mind when I'm with a friend out to eat and something doesn't come out. I'm like, I'm just grateful that I'm here in this time, a very set-apart time with this person that's intentional and quality. If the food's not great, it's not the end of the world. Yes. But when you have fostered this kind of gluttony, it fosters also a continued disappointment to get what you want. And Screwtape says that this has got some lovely side effects, namely a bad temper, which causes strains in all of her relationships. And this is all very reminiscent of similar characters in Lewis's work. You're recall the mother in The Great Divorce. And, and many of those characters, what they want is they want the universe to make them happy on their own terms. And they will not accept it any other way. And knowing that happiness comes from our Heavenly Father, which requires you to accept it on his terms. And there's one character in The Four Loves. Lewis tells a story about Mrs. Fidget, who is very much like the patient's mother. Uh, Under the guise of being kind and helpful, she just terrorizes her family. And at the end of this wonderful section, Lewis writes, because she's recently died, Lewis writes, The vicar says Mrs. Fidget is now at rest. Let us hope she is. What's quite certain is that her family are. (sighs) What a fear. I don't actually have that fear. I don't think I have that problem. But how scary would it be to know if when you die, people are happier? You know, it's like that quote. There's two types of people. There's those that when they're in their presence, they make those around them happier. And there's those that when they leave, they make those (laughs) that were around them happier. Yeah. Yeah. Be the former. (laughs) Or or at least the latter is entertaining. Uh, Now, as you would expect, the forces of good wouldn't be idle throughout all of this. And fortunately, Glubos has a ready response. Because Screwtape says that if ever God, the enemy, introduces into her mind the faint suspicion that she might be too interested in food, Glubos counters by suggesting to her that she doesn't mind what she eats herself, but she does like to have nice things for her boy. In fact, of course, her greed has been one of the chief sources of his domestic discomfort for many years. 
once again, hiding behind another virtue to uh, indulge in a vice. Screw tape is sneaky. That sneaky little devil. <laughs> so... At this point in the letter, Screwdape has established the wonderful results of gluttony in the patient's mother, so he turns to the patient himself. And what's kind of interesting, Screwdape says that there's a difference between the sexes when it comes to this particular vice. He says, being male, the patient is not so likely to be caught by the all-I-want camouflage. Males are best turned into gluttons with the help of their vanity. They ought to be made to think themselves very knowing about food, to pique themselves on having found the only restaurant in town where steaks are cooked really properly. What begins as vanity can then be gradually turned into a habit. So Matt, I've got to ask you, how's your scotch? It's it's the best. <laughs> the absolute best. <laughs> and I've got the best records and vinyls that I listen to while I drink the scotch. And, you know, if I'm not feeling scotch in a record, I'll go out to one of the best restaurants. I know exactly where it is. Seriously, though, how how does one take this into consideration? How does one care about food, take an interest in eating nice food and nice drink, appreciate the good things of God's creation, and not head down this road? Because Screwtape seems very confident. You know, I think it, it really comes down to the vainglory is a word. And I believe it was because of the Chris Armstrong book that I'm reading on the medieval church. I think he unpacks vainglory in a different sense and pride. Vainglory has to do with almost a fakeness to make yourself seem more sophisticated. And if you're, if you're doing it without the intention, if you don't have that, some people don't really have that struggle where they need it to be the best so they can seem the best but they really just desire a good experience. I think that's, it is a little bit different. Um, I do enjoy nice restaurants, but I don't ever find myself trying to posture to a female um, and back. Oh, I know the best restaurants. <laughs> I just enjoy with my closest friends going to a great restaurant and having a good experience. I think part of it must be related to where, where you take your pride. It's one thing to praise the food, it's another thing to praise yourself for knowing the right place to get that food. That was a long way of explaining what I was trying to do with the vainglory. So I don't place my pride in that. I place my pride in plenty of other things, but that is not one of them. I, I've definitely known, particularly foodies, I think are obviously susceptible to this particular item. When my, my one of my former bosses, when we would come in on Monday, he asked what happened and he said, oh, we went and got some tacos at such and such place it's like oh the tacos there are terrible they're the worst the only place in town where you can get good tacos is here tell them that i sent you (laughs) i've never wanted to be one of those people so to give you an example to kind of back it up even when i was in college i had a chance of 12 weeks when i was at the oxford program to travel and the first week or two, I went to some museums and I went to Florence and Venice and Paris and I went to these and I go, I'm not really enjoying this that much. And I don't get any joy of being able to say I went to these places. And so then I just started going where I wanted to go. And I realized my issue is, of course, more the gluttony and just like wanting to experience these pleasures to an excessive amount. That's more my issue. Experiencing what others say pleasure so I can brag about them usually is not an issue of mine. I'm, I'm the type of person I go, well, this is just dumb. I don't know why I'm here. I don't find any beauty in this, any joy in this. And state telling other people why I was here doesn't also fix the moments that I'm in right now and make me enjoy this. I'm reminded of the earlier letter where Screwtape says that even a love of tripe and onions has kept people out of hell. Basically because it was some food that they loved and they didn't really care who knew it, even if it wasn't refined and sophisticated. So I, I, again, I think it, it's, it's where you're putting your emphasis. Where is the focus? Is it on you for being so amazing, for picking the right stuff, or is it on the stuff that you found? I remember I was giving a talk in Kansas, and I spent the night at the uh, young adult coordinator's house. And after we'd done the talk, we went down to his basement where he had built this bar. And he knew I was a Scotch guy. His thing was bourbon, but a very specific kind of mm-hmm. bourbon. He would try and find the cheapest, best bourbons he could. And so we tried a number of these bourbons, none of which I think cost more than about 20 bucks. And they were amazing because he was putting his focus on, is, is this something that I'm really enjoying rather than do I have the fancy label brand that lets people know that I really know my bourbon? In related on that, guys, that is 
the most true with wine and fine wines. <laughs> I just read a deep dive study that did blind tasting test. And well, one with people who didn't know the price of the wines and one with people who did know the price and price made a massive difference in people's perception of whether they enjoyed the wine or not. There was very minimal difference between like a 300 bottle and a $30 bottle when people <laughs> didn't know the price. There was a big difference when people thought, oh, I'm drinking a $300 bottle of wine. This is so good. <laughs> it has to be. <laughs> it has to be. And if you don't, you think you're wrong. You're like, my palate's clearly not refined enough yet. Yeah. No, it's it's as with most things when it comes to whether it's a which Lewis book you're reading, what kind of scotch you're drinking, what kind of restaurant you go to. It's like, well, do you like it? I will say, a Michelin star tasting menu. It's really good. Well, it's not going to be bad. <laughs> That's one though, where just because you're paying more, the chefs really do an amazing job, and so it's that one's not quite like wine. I would argue. Or wine, I really don't. I, I've tasted nice bottles of wine. I'm like, this isn't that good. <laughs> Although I will make a recommendation for a movie. I think it's called A Hundred Foot Journey. I just actually sent it to my oh, mother for Christmas. Yes. And it's about this. I think they're an Indian, Indian family who moved to France following persecution. And they are 100 feet away from a Michelin star restaurant. And so they're cooking Indian food. And uh, over the street, there's this very snooty French proprietess who serves michelin star food and the battle that ensues it's it's a wonderful movie i thoroughly recommend it i would only say be ready to call to get takeaway curry once it's finished because you will be starving i second everything you said wait you've seen it (laughs) (laughs) yes wow multiple times okay great movie okay wow also watch the Bradley Cooper one either called like Burnt or Chef or something where he's attempting to get a Michelin star and it shows you the process of it and it's intense. Okay. Wow. Well, this this is a great episode. Oh, so much achieved. Uh, uh, anyway, Screwtape ends this section of the letter by saying that however Wormwood tries to approach his patient, he must remain focused on his goal, which is namely to take the patient to a point where the denial of any of his refined indulgences, whether that's champagne, tea, cigarettes, sole colbert, which is a fancy fish dish. So when there's a delay or denial of any of these things, that it annoys him greatly and wears away his charity, his justice, and his obedience. And this was your quote of the week. Mm -hmm. And I would say too, there's a short term and a long term. So here I believe it's it's arguing about the short term. So let's say in the moment you get denied a pleasure that you were anticipating or expecting, whether it's a, but probably the best example is at a restaurant, a really great meal and it comes and it's just terribly cooked. And in that moment, you can lose your composure. You can be uncharitable in hospital. Okay. I would also be very vigilant of the longer term. You can go through seasons of life where you're not experiencing pleasures and it can also be in those, and I, this is what I can more relate to. Typically, the short term, I do a very, I would argue, say that I do a pretty good job of maintaining the charity and composure. But I've gone through seasons where I'm not experiencing many indulgences or pleasures because of the season of life for one reason or another. And it's that that you can creep into a bitterness and a lack of joy. And those deeper issues lead to day-to-day lack of charity, lack of kindness, lack of compassion. I would also really argue to watch out for that. The slow fade, honestly, of what can happen if you aren't feeling like you're getting what you deserve. And that can happen for seasons of life. And this is going to be an idea that we're going to be coming back to several more times before we're at the end of these letters. And for each of these, I'd once again say, I think gratitude is our primary weapon against succumbing to that if every night in my prayers i'm just listing all the things i was grateful for that day be it the coffee that uh, my wife made for me or having low traffic going to work having a really good day in the office getting a particular problem solved listing all the things that you're grateful for reminds you about what a gift life is and sometimes it's i'm really grateful for the opportunity to grow in virtue like and it can be so bad of a day. Yeah. <laughs> I say this every time on the podcast with David. Um, but no, there, literally in your entire day, there can be really minimal from a surface shallow perspective. It's like nothing went right. The project went terrible. The meeting went terrible. This person snipped at you. You didn't really get the productivity you want done. You were distracted all day. And it's like, 
what God in there can I be grateful for? And it's like, God, I'm just grateful for the ability to grow in patience with this person, the ability to do this with this scenario. And that can be enough. Or at the very least, it's now time to go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm grateful, which is why they say make your bed in the morning, because I am grateful to get into a made bed. Let's then talk about the end of this letter, because this is where Screwtape speaks about chastity. He says, mere excess of food is much less valuable than delicacy. Its chief use is as a kind of artillery preparation for attacks on chastity. Now, here he's talking about uh, that you pound the enemy with artillery before you make your attack. But I wasn't quite clear as to which kind of gluttony he was saying was the best preparation for attacking chastity. He says, mere excess of food is much less valuable than delicacy. Its chief use. Is the its chief use? Is he talking about delicacy or excess? My first assumption is a mere excess in food. Because mm-hmm. that's the that's the the focus of that first sentence. So I assume that it's is staying with the focus. I think that's very probable. And that was my initial instinct. Although what he says a little bit afterwards, when he speaks about what the patient has been eating and drinking rather than how much, makes me wonder whether it's actually the delicacy. But let me just read the next section and then we can unpack it. As always, Screwtape says that the patient must be kept ignorant. He says, never let him notice the medical aspect. Keep him wondering what pride or lack of faith has delivered him into your hands when a simple inquiry into what he's been eating and drinking in the last 24 hours would show him whence your ammunition comes and thus enable him by a very little abstinence to imperil your lines of communication. This goes back to, honestly, I feel like it's now clear to me, and this is how I'm interpreting it. (laughs) Don't shoot me down, David. But when you asked me that question earlier of, and I, I talked about how habits, beginning habits and building on that, I really think this is actually his way kind of unclearly, which is uncharacteristic of Lewis, explaining that. I can say from my own journey of chastity and in cases in my past of unchastity, whether it's with pornography or masturbation, it can be as simple as other like dopamine type hits, whether it's having a drink of alcohol, whether it's having a bunch of food. Like I've had it where it starts with a decision to veg out and to watch a movie, to eat food, like a pizza and to have a drink. But then after those, you realize those didn't give you the pleasure you want. So you up your game. Those got you to the point where you gave up on your disciplines. They didn't satisfy you the way you want. And now you up your game to, well, this will provide me the pleasure I was seeking. So I think that's what he's saying. I'm going to agree with you. While I, oh. Yeah, I know. Whoa. Mark Ladies this in your diary. Gentlemen, we're done. I'm done. <laughs> I retire. Write this down in your journal. But no, I agree with you. Uh, while I think both kinds of gluttony can be used as preparation for attacks on unchastity, because if you think about it, the gluttony of delicacy is all about getting what I want. Well, if my lust tells me what I want, and I'm used to getting what I exactly what I want, it's going to feed into that. But I'm with you. I think the excess, when I am just trying to fill up my sensory experience in order to make myself happy, that dramatically weakens me to resist lust. Mm-hmm. And earlier I mentioned that I pulled up the Summa and read what Aquinas had to say and that he quoted St. Gregory. Well, St. Gregory actually offers us this sage advice. He says that unless we first tame the enemy dwelling within us, namely our gluttonous appetite, we have not even stood up to engage in the spiritual combat. So he's saying, unless you've got your gluttony in check, you haven't even started trying to fight the spiritual battle. These principles you're bringing in here, phenomenal, by the way. Thank you very much. That's my pride going up. (laughs) Uh, But this also reminded me of one of my favorite parts of the catechism, which I'm actually reading through with my wife this year. The catechism in paragraph 2339 says, (laughs) Fasting is an apprenticeship in self-mastery. It is the training in human freedom. Either man governs his passions and finds peace, or he lets himself be dominated by them and becomes unhappy. What I really like about that catechism statement is it's not self-mastery for salvation or self-mastery to please God. He's probably pleased and happy when you work on those things. and It delights him because he wants to see you free, but it's, it's for your own benefit, human freedom. And I really liked your Gregory comment because it can be, I can speak because I have worked with a lot of men. I've been in these positions before in issues of chastity can be a very tough thing. And I only can speak from the male perspective, but I do know statistically it can be also very tough for women. And I love the practicality of what Gregory says. 
he doesn't go and say, well, just go fight that big spiritual combat and get your sword out. He goes, start small. <laughs> Let's work on the gluttony. So maybe work on just healthy exercise, healthy eating, and getting a bit of routine there. Don't even worry yet about the bigger battle. Focus on that. Take a cold shower maybe every morning. That's another one you can do. And then work your way up. I lost everyone on the cold shower. I guarantee it. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, heck no. Well, your comments about exercise and cold showers actually very interestingly lead into the final thing that Screwtape says. And I'd actually say it's probably, it's one of the hardest passages in this letter because he talks about the medical side of chastity. If he must think of the medical side of chastity, feed him the grand lie which we have made the English humans believe that physical exercise in excess and consequent fatigue are specially favorable to this virtue. How they can believe this in the face of the notorious lustfulness of sailors and soldiers may well be asked. So what do you think he means by this? And what do you think he means by the medical side of chastity? So first, I think he's saying the opposite of what I just said. And I disagree with him if he is. <laughs> but to unpack what I mean by that. So the medical side of chastity, I think he almost means a practical. So when I meet with people, I will talk about the habit side of chastity and then the the more spiritual side of chastity. And so I think I would use the word physiological, the physiological element that's involved in the formation of this virtual vice. Yes, I like that. And I'll literally say, guys, um, you're addicted to a dopamine hit that's really strong here, up to the level of crack cocaine if you're watching pornography. And I'll use this one for chastity, not like um, physical, lustful acts at this stage. Because a lot of people struggle with that. And I'll say, get covenant eyes and just break it first. Stop trying to do do some of these other things, but really practically try to just break the habit. So if you can stop all of the feedback loops and you can prevent yourself from even looking at it after about a month, you'll be surprised the physiological really diminish. It's not gone. You still have a hole in you that's seeking pleasure somewhere, but it's a lot easier to fight now. Now let's start working on the source of it, a dissatisfaction, a displeasure, a desire for validation, a desire for comfort. Now let's figure out where we can work there. But let's chop that first part off first. Get rid of this. It's literally a physical habit daily or weekly. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think there's definitely a physiological component where you can do some very practical things to help you. But I think Screwtape is promoting the thought that excessive exercise and exhaustion leads to a nurturing of chastity. And that obviously has at least some problems with it. Uh, Lewis actually says that the idea was nurtured by gym teachers as an excuse for sports. <laughs> so gym teachers were saying, oh, this will produce nice chaste boys. Let's, let's give them more rugby games. Uh, the, the main point here that I, that I thought he was getting at was about excess and moderation. Because it, it's very easy to see a virtue as the polar opposite of a corresponding vice. But I would say that this only really encourages an excess of another form. And as Screwtape says elsewhere, all excesses are to be encouraged excess, except excessive devotion to the enemy. Rather, I would say authentic virtue isn't excessive but temperate. Aristotle spoke about the golden mean between two excesses. So I would say that when I'm living a life that is not moderate and it's not balanced, I'm much more prone to the sins against chastity. Yeah, the way you phrase it, I can get behind that, which is where you're you're making another God out of exercise. I think it could be another way of putting it. And you do see people do that. You see people who've really struggled in one area of life with a vice or addiction, and they turn it to another way. I've actually seen this, and I want to be sensitive, there could be people listening to this, but I've seen this with eating disorders. And then they'll fix eating disorder, but there'll be an excessive exercising disorder. And it just replaced itself in a different way. And I think the same thing can happen as what you're describing here with chastity, and you just push it another way and you lift that up to an idol i think the other thing that it's also doing is it's reducing the virtual vice to purely the physiological it's like if you have feelings yes. of lust well simply cold showers and simply going for runs that's that's what you do that's just how you fix it it's like that is a component because in screw language we are amphibian you know we are embodied creatures but we're also spiritual so there are other aspects to this which need to be addressed and that's where actually i really appreciate it i in 2020, because I went through some pretty down periods and some vices popped back up, I was asking myself how to get rid of some of them. And it was actually Matt Fratt on Pints with Aquinas when he was talking about sometimes you have to discern whether something like Exodus 90 is right for you or not. And Exodus 90 is very much cold showers, no snacking, no desserts, no alcohol. No, it's, it's no to a whole bunch of stuff. And some of those things can make it a bit tough for maybe socializing with people. And when I reflected on one of my big root causes was a lack of 
community intimacy because of a pandemic and some isolation loneliness, I realized it probably wasn't healthy for me to do something like that in that stage. Even though the physiological part, it could help. I had a deeper spiritual issue that actually those things, I really needed to experience some pleasures and some genuine pleasures. And sometimes going out and having a drink with a buddy is a good, fine thing. And it's a very pleasurable experience. And so I really appreciate his advice and wisdom on that. Well, let's try and wrap it up with Screwtape Unscrewed. I have two very simple do's and don'ts. Do fast. And we've got Lent coming up soon, so it's a perfect time to do it. So do fast and do not forget to say thank you. Nurturing an attitude of gratitude, I think, solves so many of these problems because you receive everything as a gift, not simply the universe cooperating with your will. And unless it does that, you cannot possibly be happy. I was going to say do experience some pleasures, real pleasures. And so that goes back to the concept of, so maybe to put it simply, do nurture genuine pleasures and or authentic pleasures. Because the reason she was very controlling and nitpicky was she wasn't experiencing the happiness. And so if you really focus on experiencing pleasures, it's really hard to be angry, bitter, nitpicky, controlling, because there's just a lot of goodness going on in your life. And I second the gratitude one. I was going to do that one. I think that is just so deeply important. Maybe with the chastity part at the end, I do think exercise is a huge thing in life. I think the spiritual and the physical, going with St. Ignatius, spiritual exercises really intertwine with each other. So do nurture healthy habits through exercise and diet. But remember that you are also amphibian. And get good night's sleep. You can cure 50% of your problems through a good night's sleep. (laughs) good diet, and good exercise. I'm not kidding. I'd go with that. <laughs> Shall we sign off, David? Uh, well, one thing I'll just remind listeners, uh, check out the Pints of Jack Facebook group and our blog at pintsofjack.com. We're regularly posting stuff there, uh, such as a lecture that was given by a former guest of the show, Dr. Jason Lepoyafi, on the Chronicles of Narnia. The other thing I also wanted to ask, what merchandise would you like? We've been kicking around some ideas on the Slack channel. People have suggested coffee mugs, long sleeve t-shirts. One person even suggested a a tobacco pouch. Uh, But is there any particular apparel or stuff that you want the Pints of Jack logo stuck on? Because I'd like to add a few more things because I want excuses to talk about one of my favorite podcasts with all of my close friends. (laughs) I I like the idea of like the leather keychain with either a quote in it. So maybe we put some quotes of the weeks engraved in something. I think that could be kind of interesting. Maybe you and I source what we think of some of our favorite Lewis quotes are like the son of God became man. So man can become sons of God, squeeze those in. And uh, I love things like Yeti mugs and seeing if there's a way to put a logo on or a mug kind of like that to put on. I'm a big, or tumblers. I love tumblers. (laughs) Uh, And we actually have another reason for suggesting this, because we're now at a point what we'd like to do is have a monthly lottery. So all of our patron supporters, whatever level they're supporting us on, will be entered into the lottery and we'll pick one or two and send them a gift. It might be a Lewis book. It might be a Pines of Jack glass or one of these other things. So if you have any ideas signed by Douglas Gresham, (laughs) there you go. Matt is making big promises. (laughs) So (laughs) if you can... uh, So if you think of anything that you might like to have, please let us know. So just before we sign off, I'd like to thank all our top tier supporters, Jeff, Chris, John, Kate, and Rowdy. And please join us again next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.